0: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, one of the NBN hosts. And today I'm very privileged to be joined again by the political theorist Daniel A. Bell, currently chair of political theory at the University of Hong Kong Faculty of Law. He was previously dean of the School of Political Science and Public Administration at Shandong University. And professor at Tsinghua University's Schwarzman College and their Department of Philosophy. As you will hear today, the professor has a long academic history in East Asia dating back to the 1990s. His first book, Communitarianism and Its Critics, was published in 1993 and was based on his doctoral thesis and adopted the narrative form of an accessible dialogue. The late University of Oregon law professor David Schumann wrote in the Journal of Legal Education that the book, and I quote, offers not only a convenient recapitulation of basic communitarian political theory, but also some provocative insights. Professor Bell graduated from McGill and Oxford universities, where he studied with Charles Taylor, David Miller, and G.A. Cohen. Professor Bell went on to write seven other books following his doctoral debut, not to mention all the books he has co-authored, edited, or co-edited, many published with Princeton University Press, which released his latest this year, The Dean of Shandong, Confessions of a Minor Bureaucrat at a Chinese University, which, as he points out, draws on my personal experience for the purpose of shedding light on Chinese academia and the political system. Professor Bell, Daniel, thank you for taking the time today to talk with us about your new book and your writing and teaching uh, more broadly. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to speak to you again. Thanks, Daniel. Let's start with your rationale for the book. As you point out, you are not adverse to changing narrative forms. And and this is not a book about political theory, communitarianism, or Confucianism. And yet, in a way, it touches on these and much more in an often amusing and self-deprecating tone uh, many readers will appreciate. Can you share with listeners why you wrote this particular book the, the way you did, and some of the backstory about why you were chosen as the dean of a school to train aspiring government leaders in China?
1: Well, thank you for that question. Um, I didn't plan on writing the book, actually. I plan on doing a good job uh, as dean. And part of my mission for that was to help the faculty. It's a large faculty, over a thousand students, 400 graduate students, 80 professors, and it's the premier university in a province of 100 million people. So it was a big responsibility. And I had planned to help uh, in different ways, Uh, basically two ways, because I was recruited by the party secretary for the campus at Qingdao. It's a beautiful university in Qingdao. And he himself is a 76th generation descendant of Confucius, Kong. His family name is Kong, which is uh, the same name as Confucius in Chinese. And he he thought that I could help with two things. One is to help to promote more Confucianism in the university. Two is to help to internationalize. So it was a dual mission. But also, I guess I had written a book on political meritocracy, exploring the kind of ideals that are meant to animate the Chinese political system. And I guess they thought that it would, and I thought that it would be a good way to learn about its actual, how how it works more in practice. So Now, why did I write the book? Well, frankly, it's more of a story of failure in my my aims. I didn't do as well as I had hoped in terms of Confucianizing the university, in terms of internationalizing the university. But the main reason why internationalization didn't work is because of COVID, right? That basically brought an end to um, all of not just my efforts, but our faculty efforts. And then in the last year or so, year and a half, I thought, well, OK, so maybe it's a failure, but I still learned a lot about how Chinese academia works. And it also helps me to think about the Chinese political system. So there might be a good story to tell, which is why I, I wrote the book, but also a way of showing my appreciation to the faculty and to the university. Um, since I couldn't do what I had hoped to do as dean, I thought maybe this book could could show my appreciation. And I think I mentioned, too, that I do have a political motive, too, which is that I worry very much about the growing demonization of China, especially in Western countries. And I thought if I could write a book that, I use the word de-demonizes China, that shows a kind of another side. Of course, there's lots of things wrong with Chinese academia and the political system, and I discuss those pretty frankly in, in the book. But I also think that there's a lot that works well, and, and there's a lot of humanity and humor. And by writing this book in a fairly lighthearted way about very serious topics, it shows some of that humanity and humor, which I think can also help to, uh, let's put it this way, de-demonize some of the uh, current trends of the, the way that China is looked at
0: in, in the West. Yeah, well put. And your new book runs about 200 pages uh, and is divided into 11 chapters, as you've described short, interconnected essays that proceed roughly in chronological order. It is a compact monograph, and I, I brought it to class one day uh, to reinforce a point of encouragement to students writing in English as a second or third language. We had been evaluating parts of a McKinsey Global discussion paper on the Asian consumer. So I I took a minute to point out that the paper had eight authors in six cities on three different continents, with little doubt over half of them uh, working uh, in a second language. I had uh, with me uh, at the time, a copy of your uh, dean of Shandong, uh, which I then held up, noting uh, there are French Canadian academics in China writing books in English. I didn't uh, immediately point out that you were also the dean, <laughs> partly humoring me, but but also uh, with a good view from the front row. An earnest student, um, after the appropriate uh, time for silence had elapsed, uh, simply stated. Cute cover. And she was right, of course. There are twelve emoji-like graphic images uh separating the titles and your name. So let me ask, is there a cover story here, so to speak? Well, there, there is. And
1: actually one of the 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 cover is is a huge success. I'm I'm not and I'm not praising myself because I didn't have anything to do with it. In fact, initially, I I had used this AI called DALL to help you give it prompts, and then it creates kind of designs, including cover designs. I sent all that to my editor, and it was was vetoed. And I said, let's rely on human graphic designers. And they came up with such a cute and creative cover. And everywhere, you know, people send me pictures of the cover all the time. It never used to happen. So it's really a, a big success, I must say. My father, actually, he was a writer who turned bookseller at the end of his life. And and he used to tell me that you should always judge a book by its book cover. And I think on that
0: standard, the book is a huge success. You know, for for someone that spent an inordinate amount of time in used bookstores near universities, I, I think, um, I feel like at I have an eye for that. It's a little bit like used record stores or or new record stores, I suppose. And records, what are those? Uh, So I think I'll just stop talking uh, at this point. Let me uh, move on, though. Hey, your introduction shares the subtitle of your book, Confessions of a Minor Bureaucrat at a Chinese University, which is, since I brought up the book cover, in bold red lettering to match the Chinese flag emoji on the book cover. let's leave it there. Let's not move from covers uh, to colors. However, the very first sentence of the introduction reads like something from a red-baiting McCarthy-era hearing. What I neglected to mention uh, was your choice of epigraph for the book, which seems like uh, such a good fit. Um, Do you mind reading from your book's epigraph and a bit of the first few lines for us?
1: Okay, thank you. Um, So it's written by a 10th century Chinese bureaucrat towards the end of his life, and he said this, he says, I have been a son, a brother, a minister of the emperor, a teacher, a husband, and a father, and I have sons, nephews, and grandchildren. What I have given to my times has been inadequate. Where I have been inadequate is that I have not helped my emperor to unify the empire and bring order to the country, I am truly ashamed to have held all my various offices and ranks without success and wonder how I can repay the gifts of heaven and earth. Now, that's very moving. Um, but I, And I thought it was inappropriate because it's a bureaucrat who expresses some regrets at failure and at not have uh, meeting his initial goals. That said, it turns out it's a little bit of false modesty because actually he was quite successful. And he was a Confucian writing this the end of his life but actually probably he was quite proud of his accomplishments in my case i think i'm a true and genuine failure so there's no need for false modesty but anyway let let me read the first sentence of the book that you're alluding to by the way one thing about i was told about novels you should always start with a a good first sentence i tried to apply this to, to to this book as well so here's the first sentence I am not now, nor at any time have ever been a member of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, why do I write that? Uh, it sounds a little bit defensive. And in fact, I've, as you know, I'm accused of being an apologist. And sometimes friends, actually, even a, a close friend, a leading political theorist from the U.S. He came to, the, to Shandong and there's a, a, actually a villager, I mean, to be or as we used to say, a peasant who was made a member of the Chinese Communist Party. And we had a little celebratory dinner for him, and then my friend there says, Ben, are you a Chinese Communist Party member?" And people laugh because it's an absurd question because it's very, very difficult to become a Chinese Communist Party member. It's years and years of training, you know, and and exams and so on. And um, and the idea that I don't think any foreigner has ever been made a Chinese Communist Party member in the, at least in the last few decades. So so it, and even I was told that at. You know, some universities in the U.S., people there's a reputation that I'm a communist party member. So no, I'm not. It's ridiculous. In fact,
0: even if I wanted to be, it would be much too difficult, and I couldn't satisfy the criteria. I think that comes out in the book as well. Uh, the introduction really does uh, lay out uh, the book's form and context. And two subsections, I think, uh, provide listeners less familiar with your previous work, some relative grounding, uh, one subsection is the Confucian comeback, and another is from communitarianism to Confucianism. Although you don't mention your 2010 China's New Confucianism, Politics and Everyday Life in a Changing Society, until much later in the book, I, I mention it now uh, because in parts of that earlier book, uh, you refer to to your teaching in the classroom and use of the political theorist Michael Walzer's theory of just and unjust war. It was an interesting reading at the time of publication, back uh, when teachers here uh, still had the opportunity to design critical thinking elective courses, uh, even in business schools. Um, But I want to try to link your impressions of teaching then with how you feel now about the classroom environment as a kind of prompt let me uh, share what you wrote in china's new confucianism a book that those times allowed for translation from english uh, to chinese however uh, lengthy uh, the process as you describe it thanks in part as you point out to the beijing olympics in 2008 your english version reads Constraints on writing are easier to tolerate if censorship is carried out in an open and apologetic manner, and if there are alternative opportunities for publication within one's country and outside. Constraints on teaching are easier to tolerate if one has the experience of more severe constraints, but it is difficult to prevent students from steering discussion into precisely those sensitive areas that may lead to trouble. Can you share with listeners some of your interesting China teaching experiences? You had invited both Michael Walzer and on another occasion the historian Timothy Garden Ash lecturing on John Stuart Mills on Liberty. And in your latest book, Uh, the dean of shandong you share your co-teaching of a course on confucianism in which you use a dueling lecture format one professor lectures on confucianism followed by another professor on communism or legalism it made me think of the famous walzer nozick course at harvard on capitalism and socialism, sharing somewhat similar formats, at least. It seems like these were interesting times in terms of what you could do in terms of teaching. Do you see it as a kind of high watermark on the mainland, so to speak? When I first
1: arrived in Beijing teaching, I compared it to my experience in Singapore, and it was much more free, actually, in mainland China than in Singapore. In Singapore, the this was in the early 90s. Um, I had to submit reading lists to head of the department and said you can't teach John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, uh, you can't teach Subjection of Women. I mean, it was, it was very crude censorship and no done in you know no apology at all, at all. not 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 sense of embarrassment. Now Singapore has improved tremendously to the point that I hope it sets the model for China's future in this respect, in terms of having a much more academic environment and more freedom of discussion. But when I arrived in, in Beijing and around uh, and started teaching. I arrived in 2004, wow, it was, basically anything could go in the classroom, except one time I was I want to teach a course on Marxism, but I couldn't use the word Marxism in the course title because that's supposed to be taught by those who, who discuss the official ideology. But I, then I just put it in the content of the course and nobody would care. So it was very easy to fix. And I, and, I, and as you mentioned, I invited professors from around the world to discuss on different topics until recently i could uh, even at at Schwarzman college and, and it's still relatively free so i had a, a i taught a course with wang wei who's china's leading intellectual historian and we would debate different topics including quite sensitive points that's fine but now one thing it has taken a turn for the worse because now sometimes students uh, report on their teachers and they have the authority to report on their teachers if the teachers say something you know politically incorrect so to speak teachers are much more careful and cautious than they used to, which obviously isn't good for um, classroom discussion. That said, in my case, I mean, I teach mainly on Confucianism at Shandong University, and and it was pretty much fine. I mean, we we looked at texts in great depth and explored them in, uh, from diverse perspectives, and I never uh, ran into trouble. That said, um, you'll recall my last book was uh, Just Hierarchy, and I I taught it once with my with co-author wang pei and it went well as a graduate course all done in chinese but the next year we weren't allowed to teach it because something we said in the fifth chapter was deviated from the official interpretation of marxism so that sort of crude censorship uh, happens more now whereas it didn't happen before so yeah in that sense it's not a very healthy development from an academic freedom point of view for sure
0: yeah yeah no thanks for for sharing that and you know There had been something written up, I don't know if it was where exactly, maybe it was the New Yorker, uh, you know, Peter Hessler had uh, not had his uh, contract renewed, and it was um, a bit of a mystery. This seems like a strategic point uh, to bring up your first academic position, uh, which was in the National University of Singapore. Which you alluded to uh, just now, can can you share your impressions there at the time? You note in your new book, your colleagues there in the nineteen nineties uh, debated Asian values, and at some point uh, you decided to change your own research interests to Confucianism. Uh, your first book, Communitarianism and Its Critics, uh, mentioned earlier. Uh, would have been or about to be published, I think. It would have been a heady time, I think, for a teacher and political theorist, not long after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And prior to the Asian currency crisis, uh, when the so-called Asian tiger economies were growing quite quickly, a feel for your actual experience uh, on the ground at that time for a young Oxford scholar in East Asia Uh, would be much uh, appreciated, I think. Can you talk to us uh, about this point in your life and career, given really what appeared to be a convergence of regional economic change with societal debate about Asian values? It may seem a bit forced on my end um, in terms of conflating time and events, um, but perhaps finally coming back to that subtitle in your new book's introduction, from communitarianism to Confucianism, which at root starts here?
1: Yeah, it does. I mean, um, so this was 91 to 94 in Singapore. And it was quite exciting at the time, as you say, because there was this debate, about, and it was a really global debate about Asian values, because it seemed that East Asian uh, countries, including Singapore, set a kind of morally legitimate alternative economic and political model to western style uh, capitalism and and liberal democracy the only uh, thing is that from an intellectual point of view the more you dug into asian values the more it seemed like it was quite an incoherent concept i mean asia's you know covers so many diverse pluralistic uh, countries do they really have common values and to what extent those values influence the political and social and economic reality i mean it's To put it this way, people joke, and it's only half a joke, that it was really about Singaporean values, not about Asian values. But when I looked into it a little deeper, and then I thought, well, hold on a second. There's something here about Confucianism, which influences uh, East Asian economic and political development. And that's much more interesting. And Confucianism has a much deeper and longer history, obviously starting in China, but influencing other East Asian countries, such as Korea and Japan, and so and Vietnam. And these values are quite fascinating. Obviously, they're different than liberal values. And unlike Western-style communitarianism, which arguably is a kind of branch or, or supplement to liberalism, this was something quite different and almost quite independent of any development that you had in the West. And that also posed interesting questions that hadn't been considered by Western communitarianism, such as, to what extent ritual or ritual propriety is important in society, to what extent harmony, social harmony is important, to what extent political meritocracy is important, meaning how should we train leaders with superior ability and virtue? These were these were fascinating themes are pretty much absent from Western debates about communitarianism. And then I thought, well, maybe I should try to, first of all, improve my Chinese language, reading and speaking, and secondly, look into those debates in greater depth, Confucian debates. And that's really It helped to motivate my shift in direction. And I must confess, my first job in Singapore, 94, I thought I might stay. But then uh, for my second contract, they said, sorry, you don't fit in Singapore. Fine. So then uh, luckily I was offered a job in Hong Kong. And eventually I was happy to move to the mainland because I thought in mainland China, that's really if you want to learn about Confucianism and other political traditions and how they influence the political reality in China, you really have to go to Beijing, which is a center of political power. But then eventually, I thought, well, hold on a second. If you really want to learn about Confucianism, you should go to Shandong province, which is the kind of home culture of Confucianism. So that's one reason why I was happy to move to Shandong as well, po, you know, ex post facto reconstruction. I mean, much of it is is much more uh, you know, random
0: and, and driven by emotions that I won't necessarily recount here. Yeah. So let me say, aside from a genuine interest in hearing about your impressions as a young academic in Singapore... You've shared some thoughts, again, about China's regional diversity and and East Asia more broadly, really. It seems appropriate to mention a book you co-wrote in 2011 called The Spirit of Cities, Why the Identity of a City Matters in a Global Age, where you apply a comparative and largely qualitative methodological focus on, for instance, Singapore and Hong Kong and, and other cities like Beijing and and New York, in attempting to define a dominant ethos of each place. The book's approach is interesting and, and not so strictly academic, and in some ways exemplifies an eclectic approach to subject matter and narrative. And perhaps it's fair to refer to Walter Benjamin, as you and DeShallet do, in terms of his idea that the here and now experience is no less important for understanding social phenomenon, as you put it uh, in your introduction. Can you use uh, Benjamin's idea uh, in the spirit you guys were applying it? and And how do you think an urban or regional ethos as you were trying to crystallize the concept is helpful uh, in conversations about a country and its cultural and historical values that seem up for debate, especially when it comes to the notion of patriotism as a kind of loyalty interwoven uh, with the rhetoric of nationalism.
1: Well, so thank you. Um, th- this... This book, The Spirit of Cities, I mean, one of the big myths about China is that it's a uh, homogeneous and that other than having some minority cultures, the rest of China, 90% of the Han Chinese are quite similar, homogeneous, think the same way, act the same way. But anybody who knows anything about Chinese cities know how different they are. I mean, Beijing and Shanghai, for example, or in Shandong, you know, Jinan and Xingdao. There's hu- huge differences in, let's say, what people argue about or what the dominant ethos is. And we we wrote a, a book on that. Uh, my my co-author and I, the Desheri, just to show that it's not just. I mean, there we did, didn't all, we didn't draw just on Chinese cities, but we did have some Chinese cities. But look, that book was published in, as you say, two zero one one, and that was still under the times when, actually, you probably remember in those days, every city in China affirmed its own spirit publicly. It was Changshu, Jingshan. It was the spirit of cities was just by pure coincidence was affirmed publicly by each city and each city had to think about what its own distinctive spirit was as a way of affirming identity so when our book was translated in Chinese it became a huge hit because just by luck um, we we hit upon this wave but what happened a few years later is that all that stuff has basically been killed and now there's much more emphasis on national unity and national ethos and as opposed to emphasizing the regional differences including city-based differences so I, I think that's an interesting and uh, frankly not very... Positive phenomenon, but in terms of my own approach, I realize it's only in retrospect that I realize it's that just whatever I write is very much influenced by where I happen to be. I mean, some you know thinkers think in a very abstract way, and and it doesn't really matter where they are. But in my case, for better or worse, I just wherever I, I am happens to very much influence the things I care about and the things I write about. So I think Shandong, it's, of course, is not its city; it's a province of a hundred million people, but it's still quite distinctive in the sense that people, most people take great pride in the Confucian tradition. And just to give you a simple example, I mean, which I mentioned in the book as well, the license plate in Shandong, it has a character Lu for the country of Lu in, in, the, war, in the warring states period, in the spring autumn period. And that's the home state of Confucius. And it, it, so they, they take great pride in that. It's a defunct state, but it's still shown to be the pride of, of Shandong province. Or to give you another example, in southern China, the lucky number is eight because it sounds like the wealth, right, In especially in, in Cantonese. But in Shandong province, the lucky number is seven because it comes from this saying that when you're 57, you still have hope of being promoted as a bureaucrat. But when you reach the age of 58, if you haven't been promoted yet, then that's it. You're going to retire, you won't be promoted. So, the lucky number on on license plates in Shandong province is number seven. It's the only province where that is because there's great pride in this Confucian tradition. And for Confucianism, what's really this I mean, several things are distinctive, it's very diverse as well. But what's distinctive for Confucianism, at least in its mainstream interpretation, is that the best life is the life of a public official serving the community. It's different than, for example, think of Plato's Republic, where the philosopher is truly happy engaging in contemplation of the abstract forms, or only as a second choice would he or she go and serve the community as a public official. For Confucianism, the best life is serving the community as a public official. And that ethos, arguably, is strongest in Shandong province it's not being a business person you know it's really or being a kind of abstract uh, you know physicist say it's really serving the community as a public official so that view also influenced my book because that that ideal i show how it it manifests itself in practice uh, for better or worse and it's more much more typical
0: of Shandong than elsewhere so now let me try your sagely patience a bit more Uh, by trying to connect some dots of continuity, or at least dovetailing concerns that were raised in the spirit of cities, and now seem manifest uh, in the time of the Dean of Shandong as uh, a kind of offset to its amusing, uh, though serious account of the here and now. Granted, the concerns are peripheral to the main aims of both works, but important just the same as I hope you know, our conversation is is making clear. Let me first uh, share this uh, from your chapter on Beijing in the spirit of cities, that there are two kinds of nationalisms in China today. One is a closed-minded, resentful nationalism that owes more to a Chinese-style legalism than to Confucianism. Those nationalists seek to make China into a strong military and economic power that can say no to the rest of the world, whatever the moral considerations at stake. The other is a more humane form of nationalism that takes pride in China's cultural traditions while remaining open to other influences. Those nationalists creatively reinterpret traditional values so that they fit Contemporary circumstances and answer the needs of present day and future generations. They dream of a people who share a culture that is based on moral ideals rather than ethnicity or race. And their political aim is to build a country that secures the well being of its people and inspires the rest of the world primarily by means of moral power. It's too early to predict the winning side. Uh, but we can be sure that the political drama uh, will be played out in Beijing. Out of your notes for this passage was referenced to your 2011 co-edited book, Ancient Chinese Thought, Modern Chinese Power. Your notes regarding the second variety of nationalist sentiment uh, just described identifies the Chinese writer uh, Yan Tong whom you also refer to in a note in the Dean of Shandong as China's leading realist thinker. In that note, you also mentioned the work of Graham Allison and John Mearsheimer in international relations. So I want to get your reaction to this from uh, Mearsheimer's 2014 book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. Uh, Because of its intersection with your own expertise, and experience as a Confucian scholar familiar with Yan Shui Tong. Uh, Mearsheimer wrote, The discussion up to now has assumed that Confucianism is essentially peaceful and does not advocate initiating war for any reason. But that assumption is not true. As Yan Shui makes clear, the high premium Confucianism places on morality does not rule out employing war as an instrument of statecraft. Indeed, it mandates that China will be willing to wage just wars when another country is behaving in ways that China's leaders deem immoral. Yan writes, Some claim that Confucius and Mencius are opposed to all war. In fact, they are not opposed to all war, only to unjust wars. They support just wars. He further says, Confucius thinks that reliance on preaching to uphold the norms of benevolence and justice is inadequate. Hence, he thinks the way of war should be employed to punish the princes who go against benevolence and justice. Of course, this justification for war is remarkably pliable. As almost every student of international politics knows, political leaders, and policymakers of all persuasions are skilled in figuring out clever ways of defining a rival country's behavior as unjust or morally depraved. Hence, with the right spinmeister, Confucian rhetoric can be used to justify aggressive as well as defensive behavior. Like liberalism in the United States, Confucianism makes it easy for Chinese leaders to speak like idealists and act like realists. Apologies for the admittedly long setup there, but I wanted to establish two things uh, before asking you for your own reaction to the Mearsheimer passage, that your background and scholarship establishes your credibility as a commentator on and about China, in spite of the pigeonholing efforts of some of your new book's harshest critics, which we will uh, come to later. For now, I understand you're not an IR scholar, uh, but can you share your thoughts on the implications of this short passage from Mearsheimer? He writes well and argues clearly, but wondering how his invocation of China's use of Confucian values being similar to America's use of liberal values moves anything forward, toward reconciliation of some sort, when it seems these days that values and isms discourse uh, becomes a kind of rhetorical cudgel uh, used on those with real or perceived ideological differences. In China, the two main political
1: traditions, the ones that were most influential, are Confucianism and Legalism, Fajia. Sometimes it's translated as realism. And this is a tradition that basically the main purpose of politics is to increase state power and it's amoral anything goes for that purpose so if you resort to aggressive warfare and that's the best way of increasing state power that's what you should do and and the legalists were very uh, critical of the confucians not just for being idealists but for being hypocrites which is a bit what miersheimer is implying as well um so but if miersheimer wants to go back to chinese tradition i mean he should go to like shan yang who's an early uh, legalist thinker who's just the most hard-nosed amoral realist and probably develops these ideas in mu- in in much more like ultra machiavellian ways than than Mearsheimer or Machiavelli himself would do but anyway about confucianism what is the view on on warfare it's true that confucians are not pacifists and i've written on this too and they have a fairly developed theory of what when it's just to go to war, and what are the what are the appropriate means employed in war? If Mencius is Mengzi is very very clear. The book opens by he's scolding the ruler, uh, one ruler of his day. It's it's the Warring States period for resorting to unjust war, meaning that it's aggressive uh, takeover of territory with no regard for moral ends or, or moral means, and it's very blunt. Um, and then he says, no, if you want to, of, of course, it's developed in the book in the rest of the book what counts as morally justified warfare it has to be if it's for purposes of self-defense and the people on your side then you can defend yourself from an invasion what about the equivalent of what today we would call humanitarian intervention He's very clear about the conditions for that. It has to be, if you, the people have to be oppressed in another country. When you go in and rescue them, so to speak, they have to greet you, and the welcome has to be long-lasting, and there has to be international support for that intervention. If those conditions are not in place, then it's not, it's not a just war. So it's hard to misuse. Um, you know, There's no way that you could misuse, for example, Manchin's theory to justify the invasion of of Iraq in 2003 or the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. I mean, clearly, it doesn't satisfy those conditions that are laid forth by Mencius. So if you specify in a more systematic and clear way what the Confucian conditions are for just war, then, I mean, of course, people can say whatever they want, but it's clear misuse. If if. One would draw on Confucianism for the purpose of justifying unjust war of the type that's being criticized by Mencius himself in the opening of his uh, of the book. So, uh, I guess that would be my uh, uh, attempt at a response.
0: No, thanks for that. No, and I realize there's a there's a lot there, and it's it's not a totally fair question. And part of it, say, originates from uh, the idea that I found it interesting that you know you and Michael Walzer we were able to get together at least for a time, and you know one of his uh, big works was "Just and Unjust Wars." And I realize the context is totally different, but it seemed it seems like uh, there are some themes that just continue to recur, you know, regardless of where you are. uh, Go ahead. When I was teaching at, at Tsinghua. Actually, I did a
1: course on just and unjust That Michael Walter's book is translated in Chinese. We, we looked at his book. We looked at what Confucians say. And we had very lively debates. I'm not 100% sure that it would be possible to do that kind of course in today's climate. But uh, just to let you know that we did do it in the past. Yeah. There are fascinating similarities, but also very important differences, too, with with Confucian uh, ideas about just war.
0: Well, uh, before we get back Uh, into uh, the Dean of Shandong, uh, and an important chapter uh, titled Censorship, Formal and Informal. Let's move uh, more directly into what Jonathan Frenzen's uh, book of similar length uh, was called uh, The Discomfort Zone. It's a great title in which to consider the tone of the Gordon Chung uh, review of the Dean of Shandong in the New Criterion. Uh, titled uh, Confessions of a China Apologist on Chinese Communism and Confucianism, and ends with these lines. Bell tells us early in the Dean of Shandong that his confessional book is of a piece with Rousseau's confessions. Like that work, Bell says, he seeks truth. The truth I seek is not self-understanding, but understanding of China he writes. The problem is that Daniel Bell, despite his evident love for the Chinese people and his decades spent with them, does not truly understand China. Let's contrast that with James Crabtree's review in the Financial Times, where he titles the piece, The Confessions of a Sinophile, a Western dean's wry and perceptive tale of life and bureaucracy, in a Chinese university, and ends with these lines. All that said, Bell is right that critics of China are often ignorant of the pros and cons of China's system. Those who know the country well, and especially those like Bell, who write about it with wit and insight, uh, deserve to be listened to, a red mist of anti-China feeling Increasingly blinds the West to the many strengths of the Chinese system. But a similar bias is true for China's few remaining admirers in the West, too, as they struggle to come to terms with what the same Chinese system has now become. Let me ask you to comment on your own reaction to the contrasting tones of this tale of two reviews, so to speak. And is there a sense that there is a link between the reasoning of Mearsheimer and Chong that somehow becomes self-fulfilling? Let me add another element for your consideration as well. You're familiar with my recent conversation with Stephen Roach at Yale about his new book, Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives. I mention it because he brings a perspective that pushes back and proposes remedies in spite of the current communication impasse, which, uh, as you know, in in your own experience here as a bureaucrat, are are not readily overcome. That said, the relationship metaphor he is working with contains many forward-looking analyses. What do you make of this tale of two reviews, so to speak, Professor Bell. Do do the apologist and uh, sign file labels make any sense to you? Well, I'm not sure it's a good idea to ask authors to respond to critical reviews, but
1: it's hard not to sound defensive. But anyway, let me go ahead and respond since I've been asked. I mean, remember that my political motive of writing this book is to de-demonize China, and Gordon Chang is one of the chief demonizers, very very influential politically in in right wing circles. So it's not surprising that he would write this kind of review. That said, I mean it wasn't as bad as I expected. I mean he uses words like you know entertaining and informative and insightful and so on. So I I wasn't crushed. Not that I would have been crushed because it's expected, but uh, by the review as much as I should have. But I must say though that I, I here let me it's going to sound offensive, but I do admire his uh, his his chutzpah because. Here, his most famous book is The Coming Collapse of China, written in 2001, and that was just at the cusp of China's great economic takeoff when it was about to become a, a great global power. You know, so to say that I don't understand China when he has written this kind of book is a little bit odd on the face of it. Um, the second review is much more um, balanced and, and informed and critical. I like critical reviews. If Reviews are straightforwardly positive. They're boring. So, of course, um, I don't agree with all... The, I mean, there's one point in that review that I find a, a little bit, uh, let's say, surprising, is this attempt to distinguish between the Chinese people and the Chinese government as though they're kind of completely separate. I mean, let's remember that the, however flawed the political system is, it does attempt to select and, and promote public officials with above average ability and virtue. Of course, it doesn't always work, and sometimes it promotes corrupt people and so on, but it's still a huge actually diverse ruling organization of over 90 million people and are the rest of the country is, is it separate from that I mean it's it's a ruling organization that you want, say selects or to be if the, if you want to be critical co-ops you know the elite sectors of, of society and again I'm, I'm quite critical of a lot of the policies in the book as well um, but still we have to recognize and according to polling that there's a lot of support for the ruling organization and compared to, the relation between people and their rulers in other countries so i'm not so sure that it's possible to distinguish so neatly between the people and the government in a way that uh, crabtree suggests or thinks that i ought, i ought to do so i'm 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 not going to go that route either
0: <laughs> yeah his at least was a little more balanced in that sense it a very critical and, and insightful review i mean i appreciate it yeah uh thanks for responding to that it's in in some ways a a tale of two reviews uh transitions us nicely into Chapter 8 of the Dean of Shandong's uh, censorship, formal and informal chapter. You opened that uh, with reference to Mill's 1859 on liberty, I mentioned earlier uh, in relation to your Tsinghua guest lecturer, Timothy Garden Ash, pointing out Mill's real worry was less about state censorship and more about the tyranny of public opinion quoting Mill, that it is more formidable than many kinds of political oppression, since, though not usually upheld by such extreme penalties, it leaves fewer means of escape, penetrating much more deeply into the details of life and enslaving the soul itself. Uh, You point out that although Mill was writing in Victorian England, it is worth considering its ongoing relevance concluding, uh, Mill's thesis is right about the West, but wrong about China. Can you share some of your own experiences as shared in this chapter that lead you to that conclusion?
1: Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, that chapter, obviously,
0: it's, it's the
1: longest one in a relatively short book. And because that's Censorship is, is so central to Chinese academia, unfortunately. By the way, on this apologist issue, there's because of this chapter, uh, there's no way that it could be translated, at least with that chapter, in the current political context. So it's, it's quite critical, as, as you know. Um, the first part of the chapter de- goes into great detail, showing the different forms of state-sponsored censorship in China and as it affects academia. But the second half is more, uh, given the milk quote that you said, it's about the informal kinds of censorship in the West when it comes to writing about China. And this is where it's really, it really doesn't come from the state. It, it's a much more informal. Certainly public opinion is, is, plays an important part of it, that the public just doesn't want to have it, much positive news about China. And, and demonizing China sells more papers, as, as we used to say because now media is not just about selling papers anymore. I, again, I detail that in great detail too as including as it affects my own experience writing about, about China. But I didn't want to equate it to of course this, you know, pretty crude state sponsored censorship is is bad and my hope is that as I mentioned earlier, that China can move in a Singapore-style direction where you did have very crude and harsh censorship in the early 1990s, and now it's still there to a certain extent, but it's a much more open and, and plural context for for discussing uh, politics and other sensitive issues. So I, I think there's still a bit reason to be hopeful that China will move in that direction. But one thing about the difference, and this I'm not saying that it's... In, at least in China, people are aware that there's censorship. Nobody denies it, right? And when the editors ask you, you say you can't publish this or that, they'll tell you the reason. Sorry, it's too sensitive. But in the West, it's as though that you can't admit that there's censorship there. I mean, when, when I deal with the media, they'll never say, sorry, it's too positive about China or it's too balanced. It's not negative enough. They'll never say that because somehow if you're committed to the ideal of the freedom of speech, it's hard to admit that you're violating that, especially journalists who care about, you know, they, 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 they I, I often hear from journalists that we care about nothing except freedom of speech. You know, other than that, we're pretty flexible. This censorship comes and it's not there's only one time where I, I mentioned the book, too, when I wrote an op ed for the what well, was then the Asian Wall Street Journal arguing for the legalization of sex work in China. And the editor told me, sorry, we can't do that because we have a journal policy that we can't argue in favor of legal, legalization of same sex work. I said, That's fine. I accept that. You know, just tell me what's going on more. So there's I don't know how to describe it there's, let's say there's more hypocrisy uh, in, on the Western side even though the censorship is worse and more or not even though maybe because the censorship is worse and and more crude and and state sponsored on the chinese side in the future in a more let's say humane and open direction if there's less demonization of china in the west because demonization of china it just it reinforces this paranoid members of the security apparatus legitimately so i mean they view china as encircled and they view you know us efforts to curb China's development, and, and it's it's hard to argue for other things in this climate. So if there's some form of de-demonization of China, I think that would help. Also, I, there's a whole chapter on corruption in my book, and the problem with the anti-corruption campaign is quite successful, but it relied, at least in the initial phase, on what we can call these legalist means, harsh punishment and fear. And it generated a lot of um, antipathy, and current political leaders legitimately fear of uh, you know, enemies who, who have been purged, or let's say people, if you purge one guy who's a public official, under them there's, there's maybe five or six uh, subordinates who also see their prospects for advancement diminish. So there's a lot of political enemies in the political system, and it makes the top leaders more paranoid. So in other words, if the anti-corruption drive can move towards less kind of legalist means and more, let's say, Confucian-style self-power, moral education, um, and, and so on, and also increasing salaries for public officials, then I think there would be less, less reason to worry about political enemies. And, that's and maybe if that happens in the future, too, things might open up a bit.
0: Hmm. We, we talked a bit about Stephen Roach's new book, Accidental Conflict. Um, in it, he defines false narratives as fact-based representations of a problem, but exaggerating it to make it contentious. And like yourself, He devotes a chapter to censorship. Your point about John Stuart Mill and public opinion uh, would be his equivalent, I think, uh, to social media's perpetuating, uh, and I quote, a confluence of falsehoods. And your own chapter, as you just shared with us, surprised me a bit, uh, because I thought uh, you would have brought up the issue you took up with Neil Ferguson at Stanford's Hoover Institution who had made some contentions about China allowing international flights out of Wuhan after shutting down domestic routes. Can you take us back to the early days of the pandemic? Uh, What were you and Ferguson on about? And is there a backstory there you care to share about why you chose not to include it uh, in your new book?
1: Yeah, in retrospect, I should have at least added a footnote because it's a clear case of demonization of China, where he makes a false claim that was widely picked up and publicized throughout the world, including at some point by then-President then President Donald Trump. And it, it just shows a kind of climate that allows for those sorts of claims to flourish. And eventually, I pushed him, I, I knew him, and he kind of kept on uh, defending himself. And then finally, basically, cut a long story short, where the initial claim was made in the London Times was forced to public a retraction. And I detailed that in one of the, in what was at that point, one of the chapters. But my editor thought it doesn't quite fit in the rest of the book, which has a bit of a self-mocking tone. And this one is more like, you know, I won and, and Ferguson lost. And it, and so I said, OK, well, I don't, perhaps let's consider moving it into an appendix and let's see what the referees say. One referee said it it was OK. Another one, one said not. So finally, we just decided to to delete it because it doesn't fit in the tone of the book, which is a little bit lighthearted and self-mocking and uh, with lots of self-deprecation. And it didn't really
0: fit. But perhaps I should have added at least a footnote in the chapter on censorship. It does seem to represent something both you and Professor Roach are on about with regard to how the social media platforms in the West create their own kind of, you know, media distortion or information distortion. So I held your book up in, in front of a um, a report writing class and um, got some comments about its cover. We talked a little bit about that. And uh, one thing I didn't talk or have the time to talk to them about was something I want to ask you about right now. Hey, you start out with chapter one about dye and dynamism. Can can you talk a little bit about hair dyeing and Just share whatever you feel comfortable with, uh, because it really is kind of an interesting aspect of bureaucratic life uh, in China.
1: Sure. So, I mean, it, it sounds silly, but I don't think it is. And it reflects something about the political system and how the norms at the very highest level filter down to the lowest level. On the one hand, it also shows how older cultural norms influence current political practices, because in some of the uh, Chinese classics, such, such as, or the Confucian classics, for example, the monks, of, the mentions, there's a very clear view that um, elderly people who have white hair should be cared for. Uh, so in other words, they're dependent, whereas the ones who are doing the caring are not supposed to have, I mean, that's the implication, white hair. So white hair is a sign that you're you're basically, you're no longer a dynamic public official who's caring for the people, but you're one who's being cared for by the public official. So if you're still serving the community, you shouldn't have white hair. And the history of dying goes way back in Chinese history. It's not a recent thing. Of course, we saw it very clearly under former President Hu Jintao, who who dyed his hair black. And the book opens that chapter op- opens with a joke where it opens with a report that about his only, he was sp- supposed to be very serious and almost boring, um, but he did make one recorded joke, which is that he was complimented, he was 59 years old, about his jet black hair, and, and he says, well, we'll be happy, by foreign journalists, I guess, he says, we'll be happy to lend technology to foreign countries. But he, he, he was in a very collective kind of spirit, where the standing committee of the Politburo was composed of nine members, yeah. each one had more or less equal power and were responsible for part of what part of the policy making process and each one wasn't supposed to stand out so they all dyed their hair jet black and to show their dynamism which of course has older cultural roots as well but also to show the collective spirit under the next leader as we know um, he is assuming uh, more power relative to others and there's partly a good reason for that which is that under president hu jintao each member of the standing committee had veto power over their own Policy making uh, area, which means that it was very hard to tackle vested interests because each one would protect their own policy making area. Not to mention that corruption got way out of hand to the point that it posed an existential threat to the whole political system. So there was a need for a new leader who exercised more power than others, who was not an equal, so to speak, while still being somehow constrained by the collective uh, decision making process. And I think that helps to explain why uh, President Xi um, arose and that was reflected partly in his decision a few years into his after he assumed power to let his gray hair grow. So I described some of that, but then I also show how that some of affected our, we had a kind of collective decision-making process at Shandong University, um, which I think overall had advantages and disadvantages. I mean, overall, I think it worked quite well at pre- preventing bad decision-making, including myself. I had many terrible ideas at the start that were shot down by other uh, leaders. Um, the disadvantage that is sometimes the process was very inefficient. We had to discuss a long, long time to make decisions and to have some sort of consensus. But like the top, we also dyed our hair to show that we were dynamic and committed to serving the good. And I do very much admire the other leaders for their very hard work serving the people. And that's my one source of my failure was that I just didn't have the energy for the job. I mean, it was you had to be constantly on on call. And, and it was, very, I mean, in the COVID times, it was literally the other leaders had to live on campus full time. I and mean, I really felt sorry for them. They were so hardworking. But then I also say, because the book is a partly confessional, although I, I do say that the, most of the confessions is only there to shed light on how Chinese academia and the political system works. But I sometimes stray a little bit from that. And I do say how the roots of my own dying have has a kind of
0: earlier roots, so to speak. And I discuss that in a kind of half-joking uh, way. So, we've talked about uh, your opening bookend, Die in and Dynamism. And, and thanks for going into some detail there. Your other bookend to wrap up the book is Chapter 11, uh, The Case for Symbolic Leadership. Can you talk a little bit about the case that you make in the book? So, thank you. So, this uh, chapter, as you say, it's the last one, and it
1: was inspired by the end of my term as dean, where I became a symbolic leader. And most of my work consisted in uh, performing certain rituals that are expected of a dean, handing out certificates, giving speeches, uh, and so on. But then I realized it's still important work to do. And and, it, and even though I didn't really exercise any political power, so to speak, but I still had an important role in the faculty. And then I looked at, and then maybe it's a bit pompous, but then I think about symbolic uh, rituals at higher levels of government and to what extent they're important and they were important in, in Chinese history I mean when uh, an emperor in the ming dynasty he basically became dissatisfied and stopped performing rituals it 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 helped to bring about the end of the dynasty so what about symbolic monarchy well if you were to design a an ideal political system um i think there's very one important separation of powers which which one would think about, which is a separation of ritualistic power from political power, that ideally you would have one ruler who, who is symbolic, who exercises ritualistic power that has the purpose of sim- symbolizing national unity, and also that allows for people to project their emotions o- onto. And then the other leader could be chosen by other means, could be democratic, could be meritocratic, um, or some mixture of the two. And then that leader or group of leaders Would exercise real political power and the people would be more rational when it comes to judging the policies of of the they wouldn't project their emotions on them where those two powers are mixed like in the case of us and in the case of china people tend now people project their emotions on the ruler which can be quite dangerous i mean it could lead to a personality cult and they're not not so rational often when it comes to evaluating the policies of, of, of the ruler but if the two powers were separated it might might lead to, let's say, better political outcomes. And it turns out that if you look at what are the more successful uh, polities today, most of them are what's usually called constitutional monarchies, where the monarch exercises more symbolic power. And then the other leaders are chosen by, by other means to exercise political power. So I argue that in the case of China, of course, it's not realistic now. But at some point in the future, if there's some sort of way of reviving what earlier, well, in the 20th century, there was also a, a famous uh, reformer, Confucian spy reformer called Kang Youwei. He also defended constitutional monarchy. Today, you, you mentioned, and also I mentioned my book, the Confucian scholar Jiang Qing, who also defends what he calls symbolic monarchy. If there's a way of reviving that sort of political system in the future, it won't happen now, and it, but maybe in decades from now, I think it might lead to a more stable and and long lasting and and actually highly performing and and perhaps even more legitimate political system. I think in the U.S., because it was founded on, well, it's less likely in the U.S. than in China, maybe, because of the constitutional system. And it's hard, as you suggest, maybe for Americans to imagine alternatives. But I, I am a little bit hopeful that it's possible in China. Although I do end this, maybe I should read the last line of the book, which is that, I will end here before I further alienate readers, so I'm not 100% sure that uh, even what I say here is remotely plausible in the case of China, but why not throw out some ideas for the future?
0: No, I think that's a, it's probably a good way to end uh, our, our talk today. Well, those interested in a different take on the China that we think we know that contains both humor and humility, would do well to pick up a copy of The Dean of Shandong, Confessions of a Minor Bureaucrat in a Chinese University, published in 2023 by Princeton University Press. Professor Daniel A. Bell, political theorist, author, editor, seasoned China observer, and former minor bureaucrat Thank you for sharing your insights and thoughts about your study and career within the sphere of China and Western relations more broadly. Well, thank
1: you so much, Keith. And it was a real honor and pleasure.